Welcome everyone to yet another episode of Divinity Connecting the Dots, where we connect the dots on topics related to personal health, public health, planetary health. I'm your host, Navi Jaswal, and we'll be talking about mental health, breath work, the vegan ethic, plant-based, polyvagally informed health um, with my wonderful guest. Welcome to the show, Mallory Kombamal, the founder of Breath Connection. So Hi, Navi. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much, Mallory. It's it's just incredible, you know, the way we connected and and uh, I've I've seen the work that you're doing at Breath Connection. I've experienced it, and I can't wait uh, for our audience to get to know you better and your journey better, and also your work. Um, so so tell me, how did it all start for you? When did you discover your breath? Well, I would say the pivotal moment was when I moved from going to high school and being raised in London and then getting a scholarship to go study in Virginia for college. And that's when I had a huge shift in lifestyle. I was really fortunate growing up that my mom, being Chinese, was really into holistic health and traditional Chinese medicine and nutrition. So I grew up in a really healthy environment. And then I went to college and I started eating American processed foods, GMO foods, a lot of things I didn't really understand how they were affecting me. And I started developing some health problems within my first year of being in America. I gained a lot of weight. My skin started breaking out. Um, I had some hormone issues. And so that really started my journey into understanding for myself diet and how that affects the way that um, the, the way my body feels. And so I say this because, you know, coming into plant-based eating was actually really connected to discovering breath and my journey with healing in that way. Cause it was about the same time in my life where I started getting really into health. I became a vegan um, in part because of what was happening in my own body. And in part, because I started taking classes on the industrial food system and its impact on the environment and learning about all the ways in which um, industrial food production really negatively impacts the planet. And I thought that this was a really simple thing that I could do every day to um, create a vote for the kind of world that I want to live in. And at the same time, I started running and exercising. And within a few months of that, I actually hurt my knee. And after that, I sunk into a really deep depression because I had been used to exercising every day and then I couldn't do that. And I didn't know what else to do because I didn't like gyms. <laughs> so I got really depressed for about three months until someone suggested that I go to yoga as a way of healing my body. So I started going actually to Bikram hot yoga classes. And I really thought of it as just a workout. And however, after those classes, I would have some really deep experiences like crying or feeling all these intense emotional releases and afterwards feeling so much more calm. And I started realizing that actually my baseline state throughout my life until that point was in a very high strung state of anxiety. And I never really even felt what calm was like until I started going to yoga class. And of course in Bikram hot yoga, they don't really explain to you what's happening in your body or with the practice. And so I, came onto my own journey of investigating what was really going on when I do intentional breath and movement. And I started taking a lot of different yoga teacher trainings, started getting into meditation and breath. And I really from the age of 1920 onwards, getting really deep into this world of holistic healing in different ways, because I started noticing the shifts in my own life and wanted to really understand what was happening in my body, what was happening with my breath and how could this be of service to other people? Well, thank you so much for sharing that. You know, I, I resonate with that so much because, uh, you know, I, I like to say that veganism is this massive mansion and it doesn't really matter how you come into it. I came into it through health related challenges, whole food, plant-based eating. Um, I know we were introduced, uh, you know, through, uh, by a mutual friend. And uh, unfortunately, during the pandemic, uh, as many of us have experienced, I too endured a deep personal loss. And I was feeling 
like, you know, I, I was feeling a lot of feelings and, and there were just many intense, deep emotions that were surfacing. And uh, I, I've known you through a different entity that you're a co-founder of, and we'll talk about that, you know, in this conversation. Um, but uh, you introduced me to Kriya Yoga and, and to breath work. And, and I can very confidently say at this point in time that I was like, I, I don't know how is this going to help? And this is not really physical, but this is breath, but it's amazing how you explained it to me. So, so please, Mallory, explain to our viewers what, what happens when we're experiencing stress mm -hmm. and these intense emotions. And as you just mentioned that you would finish your Bikram Hot Yoga class, which you were thinking of as a workout, which a lot of us do, because there's sweat involved and you're moving your physical body. But how is our energetic body involved? Mm. Talk to us a, a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it would be helpful to share a bit about how the nervous system works. Because when I started learning about this, it really, everything clicked into place for me. And what I learned is that when we're in a state of stress, our nervous system is in a sympathetic response. So what that means is we are preparing unconsciously to meet a threat in our environment. We're trying to survive. In a lot of ways, it's a survival reaction to some perceived threat in our environment. And so our body is priming us to either fight, so attack the threat, or flee, run away from the threat, or freeze, which could be shutting down or um, being frozen in that moment. So these are different ways that our nervous system has evolved over human history to meet environmental threats. The thing is, the threats that we evolved to react to back in early human history were predators in our environment or something like that, where these reactions would actually have been useful. But nowadays, what we find threatening is having an argument with our partner or a disagreement with our boss or having loud sounds in the city that we live in all of these different stimuli, our nervous system can interpret unconsciously as a threat and kick us into a stress response. And because of how modern society is, most of us are actually in a state of chronic stress all the time where our nervous system is on high alert, hypervigilant, waiting to respond to threats in the environment. And the thing is, all of these these things happen in the body outside of our conscious control. We're not actively thinking, oh, I feel under threat right now. Let me tense my muscles and, um, you know, dilate my pupils and, um, you know, release stress hormones. These are all things that our body does um, on its own for a good reason, because we, you know, if we need to respond to something in a split second, we want to kick into gear really quickly. However, what that means is that our bodies can be doing all these reactions without us necessarily being aware of it. And what's so powerful about the breath is that it's the one function in the autonomic nervous system that happens outside of our conscious control. That is, we breathe all the time without thinking about it, thankfully. And then also it's within our conscious control. So we can choose how we breathe, we can choose to slow down our breath, to change our breath patterns. And because the breath is connected in through the vagus nerve to all these other functions in the body, by changing our breath pattern, we also change all these other physiological reactions. So every emotion, every state has an associated breath pattern with it. So when we learn to consciously shift our breath, we're actually also learning to shift what's happening in our body to shift how our nervous system is responding, which is incredibly empowering to me. Mallory, okay, let's slow down for our viewers who uh, who haven't already been initiated into this and are, might be new to this. So are you saying that our breath controls our stress response? Hmm. And, and that we can consciously choose it. And, and if we were to alter it, then somehow our emotions might get altered. 
Yeah. So how I like to express this is that your breath is like the remote control of your nervous system. And most people have their remote control off to the side and aren't even aware that it exists. So the nervous system is just doing its thing, reacting, and we're on autopilot. So that um, is the way that I was living before I found breath in these practices. When we start to become more conscious of our breath and learn specific breath techniques, by shifting how we breathe, we shift what's happening in our nervous system. We shift what's happening in our body on a physiological level. So this is so powerful. This means that you can even shift the stress hormones that are being released in your body. You can shift how your body is digesting food. You can shift how um, mus muscle tension also, because these are all functions of the stress response. So yes, that is right. And when I started learning the science behind this, I had the same reaction of my mind is blown. This seems like a fundamental human um, quality or human skill that we, our capability and why has no one taught this to me before? And so I became very obsessed with sharing this information with the world. Yes, absolutely. And and so am I, you know, I'm, I'm part of that list of obsessed followers of your work and, um, and obsessed with my own breath as well, you know, and then thank you so much for sharing uh, the the Kriya Yoga and, and the breath work and, and all of those things will get into, uh, you know, all the nuances in our conversation. But you mentioned the vagus nerve, mm -hmm. right? And um, it's it's very important. It's very central to understanding, wait, what what is this nerve? I, I didn't understand where this nerve is, how many of these nerves there are. So we can shed a little bit of light, uh, you know, and I know we're not scientists here, but if you can just share with us a little bit, and I'll uh, assist you with a graphic that we made, um, and uh, then we can start to sort of understand a little bit about the um, bodily or the nervous system makeup that enables the breath to do the wonderful things it's capable of. Sure. I love talking about the vagus nerve. It's the central highway of the autonomic nervous system. And when I say autonomic nervous system, that means the nervous system functions that happen outside of your conscious control that happen automatically. There are a lot of other nerve systems in your body that allow you to say, move your arms, your somatic nervous system um, and other things. But we're talking about the autonomic, which is what governs this stress reaction that we've been talking about. And the vagus nerve runs all the way from your brain, through your chest, through your, you know, connected to your lungs, your heart, all your major organs and into your digestive system. And you actually have more vagus nerve endings in your gut than you do in your brain. So this is why when you feel really strong emotions like anger or sadness or grief, a lot of people feel that in their chest and in their stomach. That's because you're, you're feeling the responses of those nerve endings. It's also why when you're stressed, it's very common for people to feel like butterflies in the stomach or tightness in the chest. Um, so these are all really great signals that you can be aware of in your body to know that your body might be kicking in a stress reaction. Um, the vagus nerve, some other common um, functions that happen when you enter a stress reaction is, you know, your heart rate elevating, your breath quickening, you um, start your your muscles might feel more tense because your body is preparing to run or fight back. This is the sympathetic response, and ultimately understanding the vagus nerve and how it works and how connected it is with every single organ in our body, um, it actually illuminates how important stress is to health too. I know a lot of people um, who have chronic stress experience um, like chronic digestive issues, for example, and that's because of the way the vagus nerve is connected into the gut. So vagal tone is a measure of the health of your vagus nerve. So this essentially measures how quickly does your body, does your nervous system return to a baseline state of calm after a stressful event. 
And the, you know, the higher your vagal tone, that means you're more resilient to stress. That means that stimuli don't create such an intense response in your body and you're able to come back to a baseline state quicker. So um, what this means in real life is if you experience a highly stressful event or a strong emotion, you're able to come back down to a normal baseline state sooner, which actually has a lot of health benefits for your body too, because um, you know, uh, having constantly high levels of stress hormones in your body, like adrenaline and cortisol can cause a lot of different health issues as well. So that's a long ramble about the vagus nerve, but essentially it's so important to how your body regulates and responds to your environment and also to many different physical health conditions as well. Right. Thank you so much uh, for sharing that and in a in very simple uh, way. You know, the vagus nerve, as I've come to understand it, is uh, the word come from it comes from wandering, the the vagabond wanderer nerve, and it wanders, you know, from from one vital organ to the other. So as you mentioned, it's it's all connected. And you know, we've seen some graphics here. It connects with all different parts of our body. Um, so when we're stressed, it's not just happening here or in our heart, it's happening everywhere. It's all pervasive. And and Mallory, I, I remember, you know, you're a treasure trove of resources, you know, with uh, people who uh, work with you at uh, Breath, Breath Connection. And you mentioned uh, the polyvagal theory to me in one of our theory sessions. And um, the polyvagal theory for our you know, uh, audience was uh, uh, proposed by uh, Dr. Stephen Porges. And Deb Dana is a family therapist who then went on to apply a lot of the polyvagal he healing in her therapy practice. And so I highly recommend for those of you who want to nerd out and want to understand more about polyvagal theory, here's an amazing book that Mallory recommends. Um, it's called Anchored, How to Befriend Your Nervous System Using Polyvagal Theory. Um, and obviously, there are more resources available on the internet, you know, should you want to understand this. And, and if you want to get into Kriya Yoga and breath work, and, you know, then we have Mallory with us offering her services at Breath Connection. Um, Mallory, uh, I've, I've spoken these words, you know, in, in our conversation the last 18 minutes, Kriya Yoga and breath work and Kriya meditation. So please demystify a little bit for our audience, you know, how polyvagal theory, breath work are then connected to Kriya yoga. And, and is that a different form of yoga? Because, you know, we've said Bikram yoga, and then there's Hatha yoga, and there's other types of yoga. So, and, and you're certified in, uh, you know, uh, these modalities and these practices. So tell us a little bit about that. And also share with us uh, your education, you know, how did, where did you get certified from? Um, who was your guru? Uh, and, you know, and, and people who taught you about mm -hmm. this? Yeah, thanks, Nivi. It's, it can be confusing in the world of yoga and wellness. I feel like there's so many different branches and lineages. So I'll just start by saying that Kriya is a Sanskrit word, meaning an action that leads to one's evolution. So the idea is that Kriya Yoga is both a path or a lifestyle and also Kriyas are specific practices or techniques that help you evolve or change or shift old patterns in some way. So the purpose of practicing Kriyas is instead of defaulting to reacting to your environment in the ways that your nervous system has been conditioned to do so, when you practice Kriya, you are your intention is to release those old patterns in your nervous system and create more conscious awareness so that you can choose a different way of responding to challenging circumstances or stimuli in your life. And this is a very old tradition that comes from the Himalayas in what's now India. And 
I studied with a lot of different types of teachers with different connections. Um, one place I really recommend is the Nalanda Institute in New York. And they, um, this is where I first started learning a lot of the connection between breath and the nervous system and the science behind that. They do a really good job of blending Western scientific perspective with um, traditional practices. And then I also spent some time studying in India at Sadhguru's Center in Tamil Nadu and also at Sattva Yoga in Rishikesh with Anand Marotra. So those are some of the most formative, um, the most formative experiences in my journey. And a lot of what I teach now um, specifically does come from what I learned at Sattva and their focus on Kriya Yoga. And the Kriya practices really are a mix of breath, movement, sometimes sound and chanting, but they've, they're techniques that have been refined over generations to create a really specific effect on your body or nervous system. And there are Kriyas for creating all different kinds of effects. So there are Kriyas for calming, and grounding. There are Kriyas for having more energy. There are Kriyas for helping your body shift out of old patterns and addictions. So it's really amazing with um, this toolkit, how specific you can be with what, what, you're, what experience you're inviting into your body and how you can really target um, different, different areas of your health and well-being. And so that's why I love these practices um, compared to a lot of the more general yoga or breath work um, that's available is really using these breath-based Kriya practices to um, target specific areas in, in our lives and be really intentional about what we're seeking to transform. Right. And, and Mallory, it's just so amazing and interesting to, you know, once you get initiated and start understanding how each of these Kriyas work. And, you know, you said Kriya is an action. And, and so these are literally, you need to get active with it. And, and uh, you know, I remember from the five set of exercises initially that you taught me um, uh, when I, you know, came to you with very specific uh, question, you know, how, how do I um, overcome grief? How do I address grief? And, and grief is such a complex emotion. There is, you know, a sense of abandonment, and especially if it's a primary, you know, one of your primary caregivers, if it's a uh, parent figure, and so on, there's a sense of loss, and, and the pandemic has worsened it, you know, for uh, all of us. And, and you mentioned that, uh, these actions, these kriyas, and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like making those mudras as well, because there are just so many different ways in which, uh, you know, you can just over a 20 minute period of time, just a duration of 20 minutes, you can alter from experiencing intense emotions to really attaining a space of calm and clarity. Now, who would say no to that, right? Um, so, do you partner with others like yourselves or others offering complimentary, you know, um, services? So tell us a little bit more about your work, your services at Breath Connection and some partnerships that either might be brewing and, you know, some projects that you're working on right now. Sure. I love to share the origin story of Breath Connection as a lead into this, if that's all right, because I did have this aha moment after a couple of years ago after some time studying in India. And prior to that trip, I had been teaching in yoga studios around New York City, but I was really disillusioned with how they were managed and a lot of the dynamics that I saw in those spaces. And what really, what I really wanted to take back to the US with me is this idea of being in a community of practice. And that's what I felt like was really missing at a lot of the commercial studios that I went to because people would just come in, 
for a class, you wouldn't know anyone else who was there. And then you would just leave immediately afterwards and everyone would rush off to their day. And I was really craving this sense of practicing in community. So I've, I wanted to create um, a way of teaching and sharing these practices that centered connection, not just with ourselves, but with others. And so breath connection actually originated in my old Brooklyn apartment when I decided I would just invite a bunch of my friends to come do um, a Kriya practice. And then we would have an intentionally structured conversation about our experience and then eat a vegan meal together. So this was the original breath connection. And these gatherings just started growing. And soon people who I didn't even know would start showing up at my apartment to join. And that it, it was really magical and beautiful. And what really shifted things for me, though, it was the pandemic, because obviously, um, I couldn't keep hosting in person events. And suddenly, there was also a disease, a pandemic of a disease that attacked the lungs. And where um, I saw that doing these kind of practices could really help people become resilient to um, to recovering quicker from COVID. And I actually had several um, students who I work with who got bad cases of COVID in the early days in New York City who told me that doing the practices like saved them when they were really struggling to breathe. Um, so I realized that I needed to expand the mission of breath connection beyond just convening people in my apartment. <laughs> and, and I started teaching virtual online classes and sharing a lot of this information about the nervous system. And over the last two years have really focused actually working with people one-on-one -on -one because my desire for everyone is that you don't need to rely on me or anyone else as a teacher, but you really integrate these practices into your life and they become your own and you learn how to manage your own nervous system. You have the techniques and the tools available to you to choose, oh, I'm feeling a little bit down today. Let me do this breath practice that I know to boost my energy or I'm feeling really stressed. Let me do this other practice to calm me down. So I want everyone to have that toolkit that they own and that they feel confident using throughout their life. Um, and that's when I realized, oh yeah, this model of just offering weekly classes isn't really going to do it because um, it, it kind of relies on people always coming back for me to guide them. So that's when I started getting really interested in doing more one-on-one -on -one coaching work um, and really helping people integrate these practices into their lives in a deep way. And I've been really focusing on that the last couple years. And now it feels like it's time to expand again. And I'm partnering with um, a dear friend of mine, Ari Rubens, who is also a practitioner of Kriya Yoga. He's amazing. Um, health and wellness coach and he and we're going to be releasing a lot more video content and guided courses um, so that everyone out there can have more access to these tools and practices, but also our focus still being on how do you really integrate this into your life and do the practice, not just in the class that we have together, but really make it your own and take it into your, um, into your own experience. Yeah. And, um, so it's very interesting, you know, since you've mentioned how it started in your Brooklyn apartment and you would have vegan meal together and then, you know, uh, then like a small group started becoming a bigger audience and, and soon you found that other strangers were walking through your door, um, trying to understand their breath. Um, you know, uh, ethic and philosophies such as veganism that have ahimsa at, at the very core of, uh, you know, the principles. Um, it's, it's really, uh, you know, my, it's been my observation that a lot of the advocates and activists around, you know, we're the wounded healer archetype. We operate from our wounds and, uh, you know, we feel the injustice for animals uh, at large, because we've encountered similar injustices in our own lives and, and so on. 
Mallory, I'd love to um, hear your reflections on how people who are advocates of social justice, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, veganism, animal rights, climate change, sustainability, um, you know, how can they utilize the power of their breath in their activism? Mm. That's an amazing question. I love that you asked this. I think, well, in my own experience, how I got into doing activism type work is from a deep sense of pain and anger at the state of the world and really feeling the pain that is happening on the planet for humans and animals and for our natural ecosystems. And so I think it's really easy to, as you you know, build your, your life around doing this work to be really deeply in that experience of pain or anger very often. And it's totally understandable given the state of the world. But what I've noticed or in what the, the science shows is that when our body's in that state, um, we're under, our nervous system is under stress. Our body is under stress and it's not sustainable to constantly be operating from a state of pain and anger. And so I would say if you're in activism work, using your breath is this really powerful tool to transmute that energy and those emotions so that you're still connected with, you know, your reason why you are doing this work, but you can learn how to calm your nervous system, shift your state so that you can move more freely and sustainably in your work. And the other thing I'll add is that when our body is in a state of stress, another one of the things that happens is that actually the blood flow to our prefrontal cortex, that's this front part of the brain that actually is unique to humans. It's what makes us different than mammals. And that prefrontal cortex governs creativity, empathy, our ability to think rationally and logically, you know, a lot of the things that make us unique from other animals. And when we're in a state of stress, our body shuts down um, that part of the brain and sends more resources to the parts of the brain that help us, you know, fight or run and survive. And so also when we're chronically stressed that way, it can be harder to think clearly. It can be harder to come up with creative solutions. It can be harder to collaborate with others. And ultimately the most powerful campaigns that make change in the world are based on collaboration and creativity, finding new solutions, new ways to do things. And so I really believe that, especially for people doing um, activist work, especially if you have a deep emotional or personal connection to your work, it's so important to prioritize your own self-care and taking care of your own state so you can really come to your work with your fullest capacity. Yeah, and, and you're so absolutely right. You know, a lot of the activists and um, advocates, uh, of course, you know, some of them have the opportunity to work in organizational and institutional more structured settings, uh, but then there are others that are more like entrepreneurs and, and they're freelancing. You know, oftentimes there are people who've devoted their entire life uh, you know, um, to really talk about the the perils of the food system that we're in at this point, you know, how we're extract, we're sort of working with these isms that have uh, like materialism, narcissism, hedonism, speciesism, sexism, you know, all of these different isms that are depletive, reductive, and extractive. Mm -hmm. and, and how does one really, um, you know, whilst being surrounded by this mud, continue to be the Blooming Lotus. And, and I know the Blooming Lotus is actually the name of one of the Kriyas that you teach. And hopefully we'll have an opportunity to sample that, uh, you know, in a bit. Who is your target audience? You know, yes, there's advocates and activists, um, but in your practice at Breath Connection, who are the people who you've been able to help? Share with us a little bit about that. You know, it's really interesting because the people that I work with don't necessarily fit into a specific demographic category. It's all backgrounds, all genders, all ages, actually, which I find really interesting. 
But what underneath all of that everyone has in common is a deep desire to make a change in their life in some way. And that could be because they've experienced a traumatic event or something really challenging. Or it could be because they are starting a new phase of their life and they just want a fresh start in a different way, or because they have a personal goal um, that they want to work towards in a different way. And so what I think like underlies all of the people who come into our community is a deep desire for change and the actual willingness to commit to something to make that change happen. Because a lot of people talk about wanting to make a change in their life, but then it is really hard to change habits. And it does take a certain amount of initiative and willpower to start that process. And so in you know all of my one-on-one programs, the minimum commitment is to practice a 20-minute breath Kriya set for 21 days. So for three weeks, every day. Um, And for some people, I mean, for all people, that can be challenging, right? To start a new commitment in that way. And for some people, that's enough to say, no, I'm not ready for that. (laughs) Um, I'm not, you know, ready to make that kind of change. And that's okay, because um, there are different ways to start and different ways to incorporate um, these practices into your life. But I think the people who get drawn to me are the people who are really ready to go deep and far. Um, and I love, I love being able to offer that. Yeah. And, and you're right. You're so right. Behavior change is so difficult, you know, and we, a lot of us talk about it and, uh, maybe we're in different stages of our journey at uh, certain points in time. And, uh, you know, people who are ready to receive, uh, the teachings, then the teacher appears at that point in time. So Mallory, you've spoken about the Kriya yoga um practice you've spoken about the kriyas which are these actions um related to the breath and different variety you know actually wide variety of breath breaths that one can take to modulate our our emotions and to shift energy states from point a to point b um talk to me a little bit about kriya meditation as well you know, because uh, you've taught me both. I've had the great fortune of learning both of those um, types of getting to know me, you know, uh, from you. So, so tell tell our viewers a little bit, uh, you know, wh- why is the Kriya Yoga, um, you know, and how it is different from the meditation mm-hmm. and do they all target the same thing? Do they do different things? Like how do they work? in healing our nervous system. Hmm. Yeah, so this is a common misconception in the way that we talk that meditation and yoga are separate things, but actually meditation is the fundamental practice of yoga. Yoga meaning to come into unity or a sense of connectedness. And meditation, the real purpose of meditation is to cultivate your awareness. So what that means is, you know, instead of your nervous system doing all these things without you being aware that it's happening, you maintain a level of awareness. So you're always observing what's happening in yourself and the world around you. So you can choose how you respond rather than just going with the default reactions of your nervous system. And so meditation is really the fundamental practice. And The Kriya meditation practice that I teach um, comes from the Kriya yoga lineage that I am a part of, and it's taught by initiation from student to teacher, and it involves a specific set of techniques that primes the body and the nervous system for meditation. And I know that if you've never meditated before, meditation can seem like this lofty or inaccessible thing. But really what it is, is the practice of observing yourself and learning to be um, aware of what's happening. And so in Kriya meditation, um, it starts by learning how to focus your mind because it's really hard to observe what's happening if you're thinking a million different thoughts at once and your brain is um, going in 500 different directions. So the first step is really to 
bring your attention inwards and start to still the mind and focus. Um, and this is something that, you know, takes time to, to practice. And this is why meditation is a daily practice. It's not something that you can get right or wrong. There's no such thing as a bad meditation. Um, the very act of doing it um, and, and coming with that intention is part of it. And every day, you know, I've been meditating for a long time and I still think thoughts throughout all my meditation and that's not wrong. It's just um, part of the process to learn to observe those thoughts and yourself. And I will say that I've studied a lot of different types of meditation, including Vipassana and other techniques. And I, hands down, in my experience, this Kriya meditation practice is the most powerful that I've learned that had really shifted my experience of meditation for me. Like previous to learning it, I had trouble meditating for 10 minutes um, and that was kind of my limit. And now I can sit for, you know, 45 minutes, an hour and it feels so good. And I really never thought that I would be someone who would be <laughs> saying that. So if you feel that way, know that it's also possible for you. Like that's where I started too. Um, and just starting to take um, small steps in that direction can be really transformative. Absolutely. And these are the small steps that actually bring, you know, our higher selves closer to who we really are. And, you know, as, uh, as, as somebody who's trained in psychology and, uh, you know, I, I have high regard for Carl Jung and, and his work, uh, I, I just feel that, you know, back when, and the late 90s, and I'm going to date myself here, when I was, you know, learning about um, analytical psychology and, and the Jungian perspective, uh, I would often wonder, what, what is this higher self? What is this individuation? You know, how do you really come closer to understanding who you really are? And, and what are the other things that uh, might belong to your culture, you might have picked up from your archetypal parental relationships and your social conditioning and your country and creed and color and, you know, uh, gender and all of these other systems that were born into. And, and how does one separate, um, in a way, our inheritance from our identity and, and does it overlap and, and not? Um, and to the degree that it should overlap, can overlap, what's right, what's wrong. And uh, Mallory, it, it's just amazing that, you know, experiencing um, the Kriya Yoga and the Kriya Meditation through your services at Breath Connection, uh, you know, it has really helped me clarify, you know, what might Jung had in his, you know, might have had in his mind when he was talking about individuation. Um, but equally, there's another organization that you helped co-found and, and you're an active part of and they're called the inheritance project so i think this is a great segue for us to talk about that and uh so, so tell us what is the inheritance project um is there any overlap between your work at breath connection and the inheritance project uh shed some light for our viewers in that thanks for asking and the first thing i want to clarify is what we mean when we say inheritance because i think Yes. The common understanding of the word is money or property passed from one generation to the next. But when we say inheritance, we're talking not just about physical things and money, we're talking about everything that gets passed from one generation to the next. So that includes values, beliefs, genetics, um, culture, social conditions, perspectives, so many things that are intangible and invisible that often we aren't even aware of is shaping our behavior every day. And the purpose of Inheritance Project is to give people tools and techniques to unpack their own inheritance. So to become more aware of how your inheritance has shaped you and then to make conscious choices about how you want to carry that inheritance forward, whether there are old patterns or old trauma responses from your inheritance that no longer serve you, that you, or, you know, old eating habits also that no longer serve you and choosing what you want to let go of and what you want to bring forward. And as part of that investigation, we also have this value of doing this in community and exchanging our stories, exchanging stories about our inheritance and how that shaped us. 
And from that lens right now, our work takes the shape of doing inclusion programming and culture building programming for organizations and also conscious leadership and inclusive leadership training also. And I think perhaps you already see the connection because through the path of Kriya Yoga, you're, you're working through your physiological body to transform your inheritance. A lot of these reactions of our nervous system, we've inherited them from past generations of humans, from past human evolution. And they might not be serving us now in our modern world, in this modern context. The things that our bodies interpret as threats now might not actually be threats. And so we need to retrain ourselves and relearn. And we have to do that on a physiological level. So at Inheritance Project, we're also going through that process, but in a different way, using different modalities and in a way that makes it secular and accessible to anyone and something that you can do in your community with your organization to help everyone who you work with have greater awareness of their behavior, what they're carrying into the workplace and greater consciousness that everyone who they work with is coming to the table with a different inheritance that's going to be shaping them, that's going to be um, influencing how they behave. And I've noticed that, especially now in our global, multicultural, more diverse than ever before workplaces, so much conflict and misunderstanding and challenges happen because we don't take the time to actually understand our own inheritance and how that's influencing us as a leader, but also the inheritance of every single person we work with. And without that awareness, we can make up so many stories and assumptions about each other and get into conflicts that are so unnecessary. So ultimately, our vision for the world is that every single person goes through this process of unpacking and investigating their inheritance as a rite of passage in colleges and universities, high schools even, and in their workplace. And then it's a lifelong process of investigation that doesn't stop and that everyone understands how important this is to collaborating effectively. And ultimately, if we want to make change in the world, just like we were talking before, whether you're working at a nonprofit or a foundation or a big company or running your own activist community as you do, Nivi, ultimately the core of that work is collaborating with others. And so by unpacking our inheritance and having tools to have these conversations with others about their inheritance, we not only create a you know, workplace that feels more inclusive where people feel like they can bring their full selves to the table, but also that just lays the foundation for more effective collaboration for everyone involved and to get the results that you want. Yes, the, the work of Inheritance Project is just so multidisciplinary, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I know that uh, you and your co-founders, um, Ariel and Katya, they themselves and like yourself come from multicultural, you know, inheritance. And, and I uh, 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 have noticed that a lot of your um, social media content, you know, you've been talking about third culture kids and you're talking about how the rate of growth of you know the demographics in the united states um uh you know of people who identify as multicultural multiracial is is growing at a a frenetic pace and tell us a little bit about that um you know what is what does it mean first of all to be a third culture kid Hmm. um what's the meaning of that? Um, And also what are the unique challenges that it poses? Yeah, thanks for asking. It was a revelation in my life when I discovered the term third culture kid when I was in college. And it was the first time I found a word that really summed up my identity. Because when I first moved to the US, people kept asking me, what type of Asian are you? And it didn't make any sense to me because in the UK where I grew up, when you say someone's Asian, you mean they are South Asian, as we would say in the US. So with origins in India or Pakistan or Bangladesh or you know countries in that region. And my background is that my mother is Chinese Singaporean. I was born in Singapore. My father is French American. And so I never really felt that my life experiences fit into this category of Asian American. And when I 
learned about third culture kids, what that means is people who were raised in multiple cultures. So that could be that you have parents from one culture, but then you moved to different locations while you were growing up. So a lot of people who come from military or diplomat families identify as third culture kids because they've um, lived in a lot of different cultures, or it could mean that you have different cultures in your home compared to where you were growing up in. So for me, I had you know Chinese, Singaporean, French, and American culture, but then I was growing up in London. So it was a mix of a lot of different cultures. And the idea is that as a third culture kid, you sort of create your own culture. You're a unique experience that's a blend of all the different cultures you're a part of. So it doesn't mean that you only have three cultures as part of your life. It means that you're forging your own way in creating a third culture. And I found throughout my life that a lot of people who I connect deepest with are people like you, Nivi, who also have experience living in a lot of different cultures, a lot of different places, navigating, being the outsider in different ways. Um, because the other part of being a third culture kid is when you go back to your country of origin, if you have one, um, it can, it, you also feel like an outsider there because of the different experiences that you have. And so I think more and more people as our world becomes more and more globalized, people are living in different places and you know, mixed marriages are more and more common. More and more people have this experience of not belonging to just one culture or just one group. We're becoming more and more a blend, which I think is really, really beautiful. And we could, we, there's so much to gain from that. And also the structures and the way we think about identity, especially in the US are very limiting and are really from a world where, where the demographics are very different. So something I'm really passionate about is having conversations to rethink how we identify the identity categories we use with each other and giving people more space to self-identify rather than assigning these outdated labels onto people. Absolutely. I'm just, I'm, I'm just so amazed, you know, with the breath no pun intended, of the, the work um, that you do at Breath Connection, at the Inheritance Project, the amazing partnerships, collaborations that you're inviting into the space and the spaces that you are literally creating, you know, but, and the example of uh, self-identification versus just living with these assigned labels, which are oftentimes not positive, you know, is, is really important to that. And it's, uh, it honors the shift in the demographics that we're experiencing, not just in this country, but in so many different parts of the world. With about seven minutes to spare, uh, Mallory, uh, it would be an opportunity missed if I didn't request you to help, you know, show, demonstrate some of your Kriya Yoga superpowers with us, with our audience. And um, so if you're comfortable doing that, uh, I would love for you to take us into the meditative uh, world of Kriya Yoga. Great, let's do it. And thanks, since you mentioned Blooming Lotus earlier, let's do that practice, it's so beautiful. So if you're watching and following along, wherever you are, you can do this standing or seated. Take a moment to Close your eyes or lower your gaze and bring your attention inwards. Start to focus on your breath and notice the sensations of your breath moving in your body. Notice as you inhale your belly, expanding your lungs, filling with air, your ribs moving out. And as you exhale, your lungs emptying, your ribs relaxing, your belly releasing inwards. Breathe deeply and pay attention to these physical sensations of your breath in the body. And as you breathe, see if you can slow down your breath a little bit. Breathe a little slower and deeper. When we slow down our breath, this activates the parasympathetic nervous system, the calm response that helps our body shift out of stress. So we're going to slow down our breath. Good. 
Let's begin blooming lotus. So we'll bring both of our hands to our heart center. And then we'll inhale through the nose as we reach the arms up. And then exhale through the mouth. We open the arms and trace this lotus shape with our hands. So once again, inhale, reach the palms up and exhale, bloom and flower. Good. And once you got the motion, close your eyes and go back into your own experience. Really feeling the symbolism of these movements. Breathing in, rising up from the mud, growing tall. Breathing out, opening fearlessly into the world, authentically revealing who you are. Breathing in. Breathing out, flowering. And allow these movements to be gentle and graceful. If that's not a quality that you tap into often, see if you can experiment with what that feels like to move gently, to move gracefully. Synchronize your breath with your movement so that your body your breath and your mind is coming into harmony. And allow yourself to really drop in and give yourself to this experience. See what's possible if you really commit to doing this fully, to giving all your attention to each breath, to each movement. The purpose is simply to reveal a new experience. So really go for it. Breathing in, reaching up, growing tall. Breathing out, opening, expanding, blooming. Each breath, each movement happens only once. Can you give each one your full attention, your full awareness? Beautiful. Let's do one more like that. Really make it count. And then bring your hands back together. We'll take a moment of gratitude for our breath. This amazing function in our body that constantly keeps us alive, feeds our brain and our muscles with oxygen. And that also gives us incredible power and command over our experience of life. Thank you, breath, for all of your many gifts. when you're ready, you can release your hands, take any gentle movements that feel good to you and slowly open your eyes to rejoin the space. Thank you so much, Mallory. That's amazing. It just felt amazing. It always does. And I hope that many of our you know, viewers watching at this point in time, we're also able to follow uh, along and experience uh, this amazing, you know, breath, uh, meditation, Kriya yoga that you have to offer at Breath Connection. Mallory, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, I just wanted to share, a, you know, a few graphics um, with our viewers so they know how and where to reach you. Um, this is uh, from the Inheritance Project. Uh, this is a, an organization that Mallory helped co-found. Um, Inheritance Project facilitates innovative inclusion leadership 
cultural programming through the lens of inheritance. Mallory also uh, founded Breath Connection, um, and she teaches about breath as a portal to radical self-empowerment. Um, as part of uh, this episode uh, at the Javinity Research Program, we've also put together a couple of resources uh, for our viewers. These are available as PDFs to download, change your breathing, change your life. And if you're interested to understand what exactly happens when your nervous system gets into a fight or a flight response, uh, there are a few illustrations for you to look at. Mallory, thank you so much for your time and for all the efforts, amazing work that you're doing. And uh, I look forward to keeping in touch and collaborating more. Thank you so much for this incredible conversation, Nivi. Thank you.